Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics. I'm Tim Jones. And while today's new book was published by Penguin in May, it is actually an old book, first published in 1954, and the new edition has simply rebranded it as a Penguin classic, and rightly so. The Great Crush 1929 by John Kenneth Galbraith, who died in 2006, is a classic of clearly written economics for the general reader, packed with lessons for today. Some of these are picked out by his son, James Kenneth Galbraith, in his introduction to the book, which was written in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008-9. Like his father, James Galbraith is an economist and public intellectual. He holds the Lloyd Benson Chair in Government Business Relations at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is Professor in Government at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of many books, the most recent of which are The End of Normal, Why the Growth Economy Isn't Coming Back, Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe, and Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. James, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Uh, I, I, I mean, I chose this book uh, for the podcast because it was the first economics book I ever read, uh, because my father had a copy from when he was a student in the 50s, so it was probably one of the early editions. Uh, Margaret Thatcher had just been elected for the first time, and I was a teenager with no knowledge in economics. But it was understandable, and it was a it was a real page turner. It, it's been nearly seventy years since it was published, but do you still hear that kind of thing from people today about what this what this book meant to them? Oh, the book is yes, it's 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 never actually been out of print, except possibly for a few weeks in. Uh, 1989, just before, or 87, I guess, just before the stock market dropped by 30% in that October of that year. And it was very rapidly brought in back into print uh, at that time. So it has become part of the, of the, of the canon of a book that uh, I think practically anybody who wants to understand the instability of, of, of modern finance uh, is aware of and needs to have needs to have read uh, and I could tell you uh, some other people some some of the specific stories about people who who've mentioned it to me uh, they uh, I, but no, go please ahead. do well, well I, I yeah. would just mention that it, in, in 2003 I was in of all places Havana and I, I had a conference on economics and globalization and I happened to have a, an encounter with a uh, with a commandante on jefe none other than Fidel Castro at the moment he he saw my name he said ah the great crash my favorite book I have a copy on my night table so I reported that back to my father who was quite pleased I'll bet. Well, I, 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 I read that he wrote it over one summer while your family was staying in Vermont. Uh, as an author yourself, do you think that's why it reads so well? Did he, he didn't have a chance to overthink it? Yeah, that's correct. I think at the end of the, at the brought this period, some someone uh, suggested to him that the crash of 1929 had never been uh, properly written up. Uh, there's, there's, greatly overtaken by the by the depression the new deal and, and the war uh, and so he just set out um, in uh, and, and went to the to the Baker library at, at Dartmouth College uh, and wrote it uh, from the contemporary, largely from the contemporary accounts, uh, some of some uh, some uh, some books, but also the largely the newspapers and uh, other records of the, of that particular period. It was a quickly done book over the course, as you say, of a summer in Vermont. Mm. 
Although I, I read that your mother wasn't too pleased because he, uh, he, he'd been working very hard during the rest of the year and suddenly he was gone for most of the summer to look at and she had to look after you. Uh, that's possible. At that time, I would have been two to three years old. So uh, I guess it came out in '54. I was I was a toddler, uh, and and I and my mother also had my brother Peter, who was a year older than I am, and and of course much more trouble than I was. <laughs> well, as you say, you, you'd have been too young to remember, but uh, that that summer on the farm. But do do you remember his writing process with any of the other books? Some some of them being easier than others. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, he was an exceedingly disciplined writer uh, and had uh, uh, a very set schedule. He would set off in the morning. He would write for I mean, three or four hours. He would be done at lunchtime uh, in the afternoons for other purposes, including going, if we were in, the, in Vermont in the summertime, going out for a walk. Uh, mm. The uh, uh, it, it went in, in term time at Harvard, he set his schedule so that he said, I don't teach in the morning and I don't teach in the afternoon. He taught a class that was strictly at noon. Uh, and so that that basically divided his day. Uh, and his writing process was also uh, as disciplined as the hours uh, insofar as he would uh, he would write a draft. Uh, it would then leave his hands, uh, go to an assistant uh, to be typed, uh, usually I think in triple spaces, uh, come back mm. to him a few days later for revision, go back. And this process would be done six or seven times. Uh, with the result, by the way, uh, since uh, he had an exceptionally careful and diligent uh, you know, editorial and staffing assistance, that every draft of every chapter of every manuscript was preserved in orderly files, and they're all now uh, accessible at the at the Kennedy Library in in in, uh, in in Boston. So he was writing in longhand, and someone else was typing them up. Initially, I think perhaps the first draft might have been a longhand draft. Although I, he also had, I mean, he did he did type on a typewriter. Uh, so, uh, but once they were typed, then he would just simply revise by interleaving with uh, with notes uh, in longhand. Mm. Well, I mean, we've had more than half a century of new scholarship on the crash and the depression since the book was written. How, how do you think it stands up? Well, I think it actually, the reason it's still in print and still read is that uh, people keep coming back to it as a, uh, as as a foundational text. Now, admittedly, it's it's it, it, it's an account uh, that it has a, a considerable, let's say, popular and cultural element to it, uh, mm. and uh, it's it's graced with my father's uh, gift of phrasing. Uh, but you know, there was a period when uh, there was a rather turgid academic economists were saying, oh, the stock market really didn't matter, uh, that the depression was already baked in the cake before uh, the collapse of uh, October 1929, September, October 1929. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so they tried to read it out. Uh, and that basically didn't work. It was part of a, a, an ideology which essentially uh, marginalized uh, and put to aside the functioning of the of the core institutions of financial capitalism. Uh, and okay, what banks do, what commercial banks do, investment banks do, and so forth, doesn't really matter. The scams that they engage in don't really matter. Uh, what matters is uh, something some deeper uh, 
and a more obscure process uh, in the so-called real economy. Uh, but that was never my father's view. My father's view was that uh, these things are, are deeply integrated and the instability of finance can contribute in a massive and abrupt way uh, to the failure of the underlying system. And that, that's what happened uh, in 2930. Mm-hmm. Well, it- he died at the age of 97, two years before the 2008 crash. And your, your introduction to the book updates Galbraithian thinking around, around that. The Penguin Classic hasn't updated the introduction, but, but effectively you've done so with an essay in foreign policy that came out in January, the, the, what you, you call yes. it the forgotten prophet, in which you argue that, quote, the pandemic has now put Galbraith's global legacy into stark relief. Um, could you take us through your argument in in that essay? Yes, I, 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 what I argue there, and this was for foreign policy, so I, I gave it a, a a kind of global international cast. Um, that what's happened in the economies of the United States, the U- United Kingdom, predominantly, uh, it has been the concentration of activities. Uh, in the financial sector, an enormous ex- increase in the uh, in the reach and importance of that sector internally and externally. Uh, a certain amount of, uh, but in the last fifteen years, eroding uh, position in a correspondingly advanced technology uh, enterprises, which are basically supplying uh, capital goods to the world economy, uh, and then. Below that level, everything that's all the jobs created are created in services, the personal services of various kinds, uh, which are not terribly well paid, but do provide a lot of employment. Uh, and that this then, uh, obviously, the missing middle is the is is what has traveled to Asia. Uh, and if you look at the Asian economies, uh, to some degree also the German economy, uh, but you look particularly at the Asian economies, what you find. Uh, is that uh, they continue to represent the uh, to be essentially centered around the large, uh, stable industrial firms, the planning sector, uh, that formed the the core um, object of my father's later uh, later work, of the particularly of the new industrial state, which is his most uh, you know uh, perhaps his most important contribution to the body of economic thought, uh, and. Um, the result of this is that uh, you could see the difference in performance, uh, that the, uh, the, the our economies, uh, particularly the American and the British, uh, were extremely fragile uh, and uh, were deeply uh, were hit in ways uh, by the by the pandemic that are that are not not easy to deal with uh, and are going to require major transformations if they can be dealt with at all. Uh, whereas if you look at China, if you look at Korea, uh, if you look at, uh, uh, you look at, uh, well, Japan, something of a more mixed case at this point, but uh, uh, you, you, you look around the world at the, at what I call the Galbraithian economies. Uh, they are substantially, well, they were adapted more quickly. Uh, they were more resilient. Uh, and they uh, came back uh, much more rapidly in a, a, a much more comprehensive way uh, than we did. And in fact, they were able, uh, because they were able to uh, supply themselves with their needs 
and uh, to uh, mobilize the whole population uh, in a way that the Western economies were not, uh, they were able to actually suppress the pandemic rather than simply mitigating it and waiting for vaccines to come along uh, to um, uh, uh, to bring it to an end. Mm. I mean, obviously, the the thing people talk about there is is a is a deep difference in in culture, uh, culture of governance. Is, is do you think? that kind of suppression could have been no, suppression that's what, of the, we, that's of what people pandemic. always say when they don't understand yeah. what's going on mm-hmm. uh, I, I, they, nobody nobody in 1960 thought that Korea or China had a culture of governance that was likely to produce a uh, uh, you know a, 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 an effective result in a situation like this and uh, those countries were and China in particular very disorderly at those at that time mm. uh, but the fact that they have developed along certain lines and sustained a uh, uh, the, the the building of an of an industrial society with uh, core technical competences core uh, manufacturing abilities and with lo- Corp- directed essentially at the corporate level by enterprises with long-term uh, uh, objectives, or long-term uh, perspectives, uh, and uh, that are not driven by short-term profit maximization, that are not subject uh, to the diktat of, of Wall Street consultants, that are protected to a degree from uh, uh, financial manipulations, from scams, from get-rich-quick schemes, from uh, pyramid schemes, from everything that's described as having affected Wall Street in 1929 uh, in the Great Crash. These are the reasons why these countries are able to uh, deal with, uh, with crises of these kinds more effectively than we have been. And we were in the position, I mean, what they did. Uh, if you look at the uh, at the post-war development of Germany and Japan, uh, and also of, of Korea and also of China, uh, you discover that they were taking a good deal of their, uh, you know, their initial impetus in the, uh, from the American model, from the model of the New Deal, and from the American uh, uh, corporation of the post-war period. That was what uh, their economies essentially were, were, were built upon. And they learned about these things, and to a very substantial degree, by reading my father. Um, mm. I discovered this in in China in the early 1990s. I went out as a uh, under a, a UN uh, United Nations Development Program contract as a as an advisor to the State Planning Commission, which is the the very center of the Chinese decision making process at the, certainly at the time. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, when I was invited to uh, effectively audition for this position as a uh, as a a part-time consultant there, and it was a training. A training it was basically training and and uh, you know educational exercise. Uh, after hearing me out over a period of some hours, my my audience, who consisted of section chiefs and so forth, all all brought out copies of my father's books that and, and <laughs> translated internally, uh, unofficially, and they asked if I would sign them, which I, of course, was delighted to do. Uh, but they, they, the reality was that in the particularly in the in the post Mao period, uh, these uh, people who were thinking about how to develop uh, their economy were thinking very much along Galbraithian Galbraithian lines. Mm. Well, I, I, so I, I was actually referring to the the governance of the pandemic when I, uh, r- rather than economic governance, but I, I completely take your point. Um, 
Coming back to something you wrote in the uh, introduction, uh, and again, you were referring to something he said in the book about the the, the golden age for professors and and the way that uh, the economics profession developed um, after uh, after the crisis. Um, in April, you wrote a very another very interesting essay for foreign policy. This one, the death of neoliberalism, is greatly exaggerated, and in this, you point out that the the 2008 crisis dented economic orthodoxy, but the pandemic blew it apart. Can, can you take us through the argument in that essay and especially your call for a new generation of what you call scholar practitioners to take over the profession? Yeah. Well, in, they, in, in 2008, uh, a economics profession put on a great show of pretending that nothing could be foreseen. Uh, and uh, that's just a well-known uh, episodes, including the, uh, the question posed by, by Her Majesty the Queen to uh, Tim Beasley and his colleagues. Uh, embarrassed and uh, uh, somewhat sheepish responses. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, no, nothing nothing happened in the profession uh, nobody who had in fact did foresee it or who understood why the system was prone to blow apart in such a dramatic way uh, re- received any recognition from mainstream academic economics not a single senior professor was appointed to any uh, uh, out of the ranks of, of of the critics and dissidents to any uh, position uh, and uh, in fact, the, the the mainstream went on a, a major counterattack, uh, trying to disparage, disparage and and uh, and run down uh, the challenges that they that they that they found they couldn't entirely ignore, uh, and this carried on until until the pandemic, uh, and the pandemic blew the system apart in a in, in a, at least a serious, I think, in many ways, more serious and fundamental way, uh, and in a way which which. Uh, unmistakably uh, provoked a, uh, a a policy reaction uh, that had to be uh, immediate, dramatic, uh, and um, you know, uh, totally against the uh, the instincts of the of the mainstream of the economics profession. So, in April last year, the United States Congress, under a Republican president, uh, quickly enacted a what. 10% of GDP spending program to keep people's incomes afloat in the period when the employment was collapsing at a rate that we'd never experienced, uh, I think, in any in, in recorded history, in fact. Uh, mm. And, you know, by and large, it worked. Uh, and it was perhaps not as, as, as smoothly done as it might have been, but uh, uh, getting uh, income into people's bank accounts, getting cash into their bank accounts, uh, kept them afloat. Uh, and uh, kept the society from falling apart in this country uh, over the course of the summer and fall. Uh, so, um, we, without any of the of the uh, of of the you know inflation, uh, runaway uh, price increases that some people who were uh, operating on 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 other assumptions on the mainstream assumptions in some cases were 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 warning about. Uh, so here we are, uh, and uh, a by a series of, of happenstances, we got a change of administration, change of control of the Congress, uh, and uh, in the early periods of uh, of, of twenty twenty one, we're looking at uh, 
a moment, one of the rare moments in, in certainly in my professional life, uh, when uh, that progressive possibilities have opened up. They may not be exploited to the extent that we need, uh, but uh, they're substantially greater than anybody in my position thought was going to be possible last summer. Uh, and uh, that, again, uh, you can you can hear the, the complaints of a small number of the old guard of the mainstream economists, but it's very clear that they're complaining out loud because people are not listening to them in private. Uh, and this is good. This is good, but it still leaves the question of what's going to happen uh, to uh, the economics profession going forward. Uh, to the extent that it retains any influence at all, it needs to be, uh, it needs basically a turnover of personnel. Uh, and the question is then, when you, since the mainstream of the economics profession has not been extracting and bringing out and training new economists who are particularly useful, uh, where are you going to find these people? And the answer to that, in my view, is that it's going to look very much, if it's going to happen, it has to look very much like what happened in the New Deal uh, and in the Second World War uh, in this country, where people were brought in uh, to achieve certain uh, uh, goals, uh, to rebuild certain sectors, agriculture, industry, infrastructure, the you name it, um, and uh, energy in our case. Uh, and when we've uh, achieve some of that. Those people should come back. Should be the people who who are uh, become the the uh, the teaching and uh, and uh, core and the, the who, who form the next generation if we, of economists. If we're going to have a next generation of economists, it should not mm. be. Uh, we should not continue to privilege a a, a tribe that has uh, dug itself into a deep intellectual hole and has nothing much to say about the current problems uh, and it is not being con- contributing in any constructive way uh, to uh, to dealing with what we're trying to deal with now so you, you're thinking of people who are currently working in in, in treasury the white house the fed at, that, well that. here and in other countries I mean people who people yeah. who are actively intervening in an effective way and who who who's who's uh, who can who can demonstrate that the, that they're playing an important role yeah but also I mean you need to broaden out the what the definition of what an economist is uh, we we are are going to have to reconstruct uh, the social systems that provide employment uh, because otherwise we're not going to absorb the millions of people, reabsorb the millions of people who have been displaced uh, by the pandemic. Um, We're going to have to rebuild our social insurance uh, system so that uh, people have a modicum, a decent modicum of of security, retirement, health, and other areas. Uh, We are going to have to reconstruct our energy systems and uh, and deal with uh, with climate change so this requires people who have have un- some understanding of the engineering issues that are involved here uh, so there a broader more uh, engaged more technically competent uh, if you like real world uh, uh, savvy group of people uh, you know, in the in the in the in the period that we were talking about in in, in the in the immediate aftermath of the crash of twenty nine, uh, the economists who were uh, relevant, and my father was an example of this. He came into the federal government first time in the summer of nineteen thirty four, working for the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. What did he know about? He knew about farming. He knew about beekeeping. He knew about a number of, of specific issues, marketing uh, in agriculture. Uh, these things are 
this was at the core of what of the of of a major part of the of the crisis, which was the crisis of of American agriculture. It was collapse of American agriculture. People who knew about that were what was required. His interest then moved on, and he became very much centered on the industrial system. Uh, but there again, uh, what he knew uh, was about how uh, how corporations function and how industrial systems function. Uh, he applied that knowledge and acquired more in the immediate aftermath of the war. He was uh, the director of the Strategic Bombing Survey, so he was able to assess uh, what had happened in Germany and Japan and, in fact, uh, realized that the, uh, and that the bombing campaign against the German economy had not been effective. Uh, that uh, you know, One of the things that happens when you bomb a factory is that you simply accelerate the depreciation of machines that are being replaced anyway, so that mm. actually speeds up modernization. Uh, these kinds of things are things that people know if they have some connection to the real world. If you're sitting in an academic economics department, you learn nothing about this. There's mm-hmm. a, the whole the whole profession is sealed off in a, uh, a you know a, a miasma of algebra and economic statistics, much many of which are in fact uh, not understood by the people who are using them. So it really has a crisis of uh, of an intellectual community who's who's uh, that's in many ways clearly passed its sell by date. Yeah. Uh, you, but you make another a very salient point in the piece where you uh, the same piece where you argue that the that the massive increase in liquidity and debt won't lead to inflation in the traditional sense, but uh, quote bidding up the price of stocks, land, and housing, so they further enrich the already well-to-do. And I I wonder there is a tendency, as you know, there's a tendency of uh, economists to fight the last war. And I, I wonder whether your scholar practitioners who've been blooded by this crisis would have the right focus and incentives to deflate assets, and and how would they do it? Well, we're seeing some discussion of that, and I think uh, this is a very interesting issue uh, because uh, here is where you get into a discussion of of, of the taxation of wealth in particular, um, and uh, the. Economists uh, who have, I think, progressive instincts, but who have been talking about, uh, you know, let's say imposing a, the Elizabeth Warren's proposal for a two percent tax on, on, on uh, appraised wealth each year, I, mm. you know, this something which requires the eye of someone who knows about tax law and tax administration, which is something that academic economists tend not to know very much about and perhaps don't even care very much about for, because for them it says it's to a degree a theoretical exercise or an ideological exercise uh, but the reality is if you're writing tax uh, you know writing tax law you need to know uh, how taxes function and how the business of appraisal and uh, assessment is is actually carried out uh, and that w- will then give you a uh, and really a different perspective and it would lead me in particular to say uh don't do it that way the way you things to focus on are land and land equivalent like intellectual property rights copyrights and patents and so forth uh, mineral rights uh these are are fixed assets which can be appraised and can be taxed and which are highly concentrated and if you want to uh you know improve the uh the, both the 
the distribution of this in the system and and the financing of the public sector that's where you should focus your efforts uh or, or for that matter uh, the other area that i would point to is because we have a tax that works on it is the states and gifts uh and the virtue of those is that they are appraised just once you freeze assets when the when 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 someone dies and uh appraise them and tax them uh, and that gives an enormous incentive to people to uh, who have large accumulations to uh, uh, to give them away before they die to tax exempt entities to universities, hospitals, churches, cultural facilities, uh, which is of course a major piece of what provides employment and also enriches the life, uh, certainly in this country. So thinking mm-hmm. about what actually works and what can be administered through the tax code. There's something where, I mean, those people should be teaching the economists, not not listening to economists who are conjuring up things that, that can't actually be implemented. In your articles for Project Syndicate, you, you really changed your mind about President Biden in the wake of the American Rescue Plan and now the Infrastructure Plan. You touched on this earlier. Um, I mean, this has been a crisis of such scale that it would have changed anybody. But are you surprised at how radical he has been? and has it been the influence of any advisors in particular that you know of? Well, yes, I, I, I've been favorably surprised. Uh, I was obviously not a supporter of, of President Biden's in the in the primaries. I have been associated with 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 Bernie Sanders for quite a few years. I never played a major role in his campaign, uh, but uh, the the whole. Uh, you know, drift of the of of the of the spring primaries and the convention. I found, you know, it was it was in some ways a little bit demoralizing. And then things started to change uh, over the campaign. First of all, uh, candidate Joe Biden adopted uh, a strategy of uh, of, of uh, essentially of calm uh, and reserve, uh, and uh, discovered that this resonated with the population, and then. As he assembled his administration, he drew upon, uh, first of all, people who knew how to function as staff and people who knew how to function in the Washington political environment. So he drew heavily from from the from the progressive think tanks, uh, and he didn't simply go out and pull down the same people from uh, well from from prestige economics departments. He wasn't seeking to burnish his his administration by bringing people in simply because they had positions in some place that uh, that that had some reputation, which is exactly what did happen, frankly, in the Obama administration. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when you when you looked at the people who uh, who were brought in, and thinking about people like Jared Bernstein and Heather Bausche, and uh, you know, go through, and 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 then bringing Janet Yellen to the Treasury, it was a, a very seasoned uh, uh, practitioner. Uh, they. You've got a, a, a group that, uh, first of all, understood uh, understood the understands the byways of the of the capital, um, and then uh, along with the president, also understands that you don't have much time. Uh, that normally, uh, particularly if you have a very narrow congressional majority, and of course this was the other big gift, which was the the Senate 
uh, runoffs in uh, in Georgia, which were heavily influenced by uh, one of my former students, uh, the, the great Stacey Abrams, and really uh, put together a transforming political coalition in that state, uh, gave the Democrats a very narrow majority, which may or may not hold. Uh, and that gives you a strong incentive to do as much as possible in a short period of time. And put those things together with maybe one other thing, which is that Joe Biden himself has been around. Uh, you know, when you're 78 or 79, you naturally don't think of yourself as having an enormous amount of time. You're not looking ahead 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, but you also have experience. You know that the successful cases, whether you agreed with them or not, of American politics are people who acted quickly. It's true of Roosevelt. It's true of Reagan. Um, it's true of LBJ in 1965. Um, and so taking advantage of your opportunities is a lesson that really seasoned politicians, I think, absorb. So all of these things came together in a way which I, it's fair to say I didn't fully anticipate, but I highly appreciate it. it. It's a rare moment, and let's hope that it deepens rather than fades. Well, I, I mean, European governments have been um, criticized for uh, – being far less um, ambitious than, than than the Biden administration, do, do you do you even partially accept uh, a European argument that less needs to be done countercyclically because welfare systems and healthcare systems in Europe are already much more uh, efficient safety nets? Or do you absolutely uh, do, do not accept it? it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think anybody who's been in the you know who knows the the healthcare systems in in France or Italy knows how terribly starved of resources or Greece for that matter overstressed mm-hmm. uh, those people are uh, and uh, how, uh, how how much that is the fault of the doctrines of austerity uh, which they've been which have been inflicted on them for the last month certainly the last 15 years, maybe the last 40 years, actually. Uh, so uh, I mean, in a way which is simply not true in the United States, uh, we may have a very inefficient and wasteful system, but we're spending twice as much on health care as the Europeans are just to take that one sector. And I think twice as much on public, on educa- higher education than Europeans do as a share of a very much larger GDP per capita as well. So I absolutely do not accept it. Uh, The Europeans have dug themselves into a hole of their own making, uh, allowed uh, a uh, essentially a class of of hyper-conservative creditors strongly influenced by the uh, by the traditions of von Hayek and von Mises and these uh, what's called the ordo liberal thinkers of uh, m- the mid late twentieth century, uh, yeah, to uh, uh, take control of their of their systems, and they are they're going to pay and are paying a fearsome price. Uh, and when you compare it to what is happening in other parts of the world, where countries are able to mobilize resources and have done so. Uh, with a real technical ability, uh, you're going to see the Europeans uh, falling very, very far behind. I mean, again, I come back to China. Uh, China mobilized its resources. It dealt with the pandemic, uh, and it's back to uh, uh, you know both a normal level of economic activity, but ongoing economic development. They, uh, uh, clearly visible in the kinds of engineering initiatives that you see going on in that country, the construction of things. Uh, So uh, 
this is uh, really seeing, un- unfortunately, uh, Europe and take China, the U.S. and Europe. Uh, China's uh, Europe's really in the in, in the laggard position here. In the U.S., I think we have lost an enormous amount of technical capacity, uh, and doing the things that the administration would like to do is going to prove to be quite difficult. Difficult to reshore uh, production. Difficult to do the engineering that we need to do to deal with climate change because we don't have the the the, the human resources and the technical resources, the production resources. We've 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 facilitated their offshoring and erosion. Uh, but uh, at least recognizing that this is what we need to do and putting some some finance and some political will is a start. Uh, and saying, well, everything's going to be all right. This phrase, counter-cyclical, just is an idea that everything's going to return to normal on its own. And this is an error. Things are not going to return to normal on their own. Human societies have to build their futures. They don't, they don't just ride roller coasters that are given to them from the outside. It's a huge mm. intellectual failing leading to a political failing, leading to an economic failing. Well, I mean, uh, coming right back to 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 the uh, the Great Crash and and the nineteen twenties. Uh, obviously, there are p- people talk about similarities of coming out of the Spanish flu epidemic and then followed by the Roaring Twenties. Do you share that view that we could be looking at a, a another equivalent boom to? The the one your father wrote about in in in, her, in his book, uh, coming out of the uh, out of the Spanish flu in the First World War. No, I don't think we're looking at that. Uh, if we're looking at anything, it's it's uh, an initiative that is comparable should be compared to the to the New Deal, which is to say, what you do when you when the system the previously existing system no longer carries credibility. In 1933, when Roosevelt came in, the alternative was not capitalism or a return to normal. There were no economists saying things are going to just go back if you do nothing. That had been the the mantra for four solid years under Hoover, and nobody believed it. The alternatives were communism and fascism. Uh, And if you didn't want those things, then you had to do something else, and Roosevelt found that something else. Uh, And that something else was democratic. It was was energetic. It was... uh, uh, and it had a, div- a vast uh, element of uh, of cultural development, uh, social development, uh, infrastructure development, poverty alleviation, full employment, all kinds of things uh, that uh, essentially put the United States in the position to be uh, a uh, the leading power for the second half of the 20th century. Uh, uh, again. We're not all the way there to replicating that. We may not have the resources and advantages that we had in 1933, uh, but uh, you look around the world, it's that spirit uh, which is going to move countries forward. Uh, the ones that do it best are the ones who are going to come out of this the best. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, again, thinking about this as, a, as, as being on this on the cusp of another 1920s boom, we already did that once in the 21st century and ended in 2008. Uh, I don't I don't see it don't see it happening uh, anytime soon. If anything, the things that we're already doing uh, in the financial sector are threatening uh, the viability of a, of a new turn and that really have to be dealt with and and to a degree, uh, you know, regulated and suppressed uh, is uh, uh, SPACs and so forth. I mean, there, 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 there. There's the financial sector hasn't gone away, uh, and it still represents very significant dangers 
uh, to the uh, to the stability of the economy. Okay. Well, uh, to finish, because this is a podcast about books, uh, I ask every guest to choose a book or even two to recommend to listeners. What, what have you chosen? I would actually recommend two books. Uh, one of them is a is, is a marvelous account uh, that includes a good deal about my father's life and times, and it's Zachary Carter's "The Price of Peace" and his biography, largely focused on I mean, his biography of John Maynard Keynes, but it extends beyond that, and uh, and in many ways is one of the best accounts of the. Uh, of the way in which my father took up and uh, brought forward, but also differed from the the the, the, the legacy of Keynes uh, in the United States. So highly recommended, The Price of Peace by Zachary Carter. And the other one is a book that's going to appear shortly um, from uh, an academic press. It's from Rutledge, and it's by a young scholar named Isabella Weber, uh, I, uh, an economist of, of German origin, now at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, uh, and who is a, a, f- a really fundamental expert on the on China, uh, and her book is entitled "How China Escaped Shock Therapy." Uh, and it deals with the decisions that were taken in the post-Mao era based on a lot of field research. And one of the things that uh, Isabella Weber really uncovered, which was a revelation to me when I read the manuscript, uh, was the extent to which the Chinese uh, of this period were basing their decisions to not go the route of the Big Bang of Milton Friedman's uh, massive liberalization, not go the route that the Soviet Union took or the Russia took after the Soviet Union collapsed, but to build on what they had. Uh, so that they were following, they were following what they believed the United States had done in the war under my father's administration of the Office of Price Administration, and they were reading his books about. Uh, and particularly the the, the uh, developed the American corporation, the new industrial state, and his other works. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I discovered that on my own a little bit in 1990s when I arrived in China. Uh, but uh, again, uh, this book is a is, is a very important contribution uh, to understanding what's going on in that part of the world. And do you know when that's being published? It will be published, I believe. Uh, I, I think the date is now like the 28th of May uh, by oh, Rulich. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, today I've been talking to James K. Galbraith about The Great Crush 1929 by John K. Galbraith, republished this month, May 2021, as a Penguin Classic. James, thanks again for coming on. It's a great pleasure. It's wonderful talking to you.